Greetings, listeners. I hope this podcast finds you well. I, I guess I don't always know what to say at the beginning of these things, but I do always know that I'm really happy to have you with me here for another episode of the Picky Fingers podcast. I'm Keith Billick. This is a great episode I have for you. But of course, before we get started, I do need to take care of a few podcast-related business items. And the first thing is, it's a new year, a new month, which means another Picky Fingers VIP Lounge. That is a video meetup with me and your fellow listeners. And that is coming up on uh, this upcoming Sunday, January 23rd at 7 p.m. That's Eastern Time. So head over to uh, patreon.com slash banjo podcast and if you sign up there you will get your meeting link to to join us for that vip lounge and that's always a lot of fun speaking of patreon patreon.com slash banjo podcast is how you can enroll to support the show and and make sure all these great episodes keep coming out and it's it's very much appreciated and it's only a couple bucks a month so if you're digging the podcast that's the way to uh show your appreciation of course the other ways are to spread the word share around on social media all the all the usual kind of things but uh either way i'm happy to have you here regular listeners also know that every episode i thank a special patron of the show and this episode we have nils larsen from the bluegrass capital of Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, we might not think of that as the bluegrass capital, but he, he managed to pick up a, a banjo while he was traveling, actually in the bluegrass capital of Bangkok, Thailand. So I, I don't know how Nils ended up with a banjo, but somehow he, he has one and now he loves playing it and can't get enough. So uh, to Nils, Taksamikit. Did I say that right? Obviously, I'm going to stick with banjo podcasts, not Swedish language podcasts. But Nils, thank you for supporting the show. And uh, I hope that time for the VIP lounge works out for you. I know that's a crazy time change over there. So one more time for the people in the back, patreon.com slash banjo podcast. You can also get a hold of me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com with all your complaints, comments, suggestions, Swedish language pronunciation tips, all that stuff. Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, gmail.com. Today we have a freshly picked episode to look at the upcoming album from the infamous String Dusters titled Toward the Fray, and of course here to represent the String Dusters in discussing this is their fantastic banjo player Chris Pandolfi. You will probably remember him from way back in episode 21, where we talked about 
him and his banjo style, but he's been very, very busy, as have the String Dusters in general. In fact, they were just nominated for a Grammy Award for their previous recording, which was a tribute to Bill Monroe. Chris himself has released a solo album called Trad Plus, which combines his banjo playing and composing with all sorts of sampled music, some electronic beats, some some other musicians. It's it's kind of indescribable, as you can kind of tell, but I encourage you to check that out. Anyway, he's here to talk about the upcoming album called Toward the Fray, but as with any conversation with Chris Pandolfi, of course it veers into slightly deeper philosophical things about playing banjo, music in general, and I find it just totally fascinating. So I think you're really going to dig what he has to say and keep your eye out. February 18th is the drop date for Toward the Fray by the infamous String Dusters, but you'll get a, a little preview of coming attractions here. So enjoy the interview with Chris Pandolfi. So Chris, welcome back. It's it's been a little bit, but you you've been alternatingly busy and perhaps less busy, but it's <laughs> it's been an eventful couple of years, so at any rate it's really good to see you and I'm excited to talk about some new music. Yeah, good to see you too, Keith. Thanks for having me, man. So first of all, you know, even even though we're here to talk about uh the the upcoming String Dusters release toward the fray, uh I feel like I could do about four different episodes with you because we we never did meet up about trad plus your solo stuff or the string dusters have done what they've done a christmas album and you're nominated for a grammy for the monroe project so you've had tons of stuff out there so congrats on, on all of that before we get started i should at least just kind of acknowledge that all that has happened since i've talked to you last too yeah it's been like you said alternatingly busy and We've obviously been grounded for a lot of the last few years, so I've just tried to make as much use of that time by myself and the band has as well. And we've recorded some things remotely. We've got this this new record coming toward the fray that we we did like you would normally do a record here together in Denver, and I've done some solo stuff as well. So trying to keep busy, man, trying to stay sane. Yeah, yeah, good luck with that. Join, <laughs> join the club. I usually think of the Dusters as being a real live orientated band orientated. I'm slipping into my British speak here, <laughs> a, a live oriented band. And wh while I think that's accurate, I was going through your catalog last night and you guys are kind of sneaky prolific. There's tons of recordings, lots of solo recordings from every member of the group, I think. So with all that experience over the years, I'd, I'd like to at least start with talking about how the Dusters put together your records. And I think we just were talking about this before we hit record, but are the songs usually road tested before you record? And then give, give, give us some insight sure. about how you approach actually being in the studio. These days, the songs are not road tested before they come out on an album. And there was a point in our career where we decided together that that's what we wanted to do. I think we were established enough as a band and we had enough of a following where the audience as is typical for a lot of audiences in our world, were coming to a lot of shows. They were coming to you know a few nights or a week of shows in a row going on tour. And so 
having a moment where all these new songs drop at once, it, you know, you might put a few singles out, but then the album comes out, all of a sudden there's this mega dump of new material into the show and the show just takes on a whole new life. So that's always a cool moment that we're trying to seize. And I think when you get, you know, further along enough in your career that you have enough of a repertoire that you don't need every new song that comes along, you, you have the liberty to hold stuff back until it's released. And it just helps to build excitement and to build anticipation amongst the fans. So that's, yeah. we've done that for a few albums in a row. And, you know, typically we, we would normally get together for a few pre-production sessions where the songs are mostly formed but not really arranged and they sort of go through this whole other process that's really not too unlike the writing process when we arrange it for the band. That's when it sort of becomes quintessentially string duster material. Right. And then, you know, we, we make some tweaks and then we, we hit the studio and a lot of times things change in the studio as well. But we try to come up with as many parts and concepts for like sections that'll be more open and and cool musical ways that really you know are dictated by the song hopefully to to just craft this music so that it fits our band and all the different voices and that's a really fun exciting process you know that they like say it's a lot like the writing process and then we try and narrow things down and we hit the studio and once we're there it's really about getting as much live as we possibly can. You know, especially the rhythm feel of the band, you know, this is what makes a band unique and powerful, I think. And when you're hearing, you know, more than the sum of the parts, when you're hearing all that shared experience playing together and all of the cool things that that creates musically, the way you can sort of anticipate what each other are doing, the way the rhythm instruments lock in, that's just what being in a band is all about. So when we go into the studio, you know, rather than piecing things together or, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. I mean, the, the possibilities are pretty endless. Yeah. We're really just looking for that one slamming take that has all the feel. And then, you know, we might go back and either fix some, take another crack at a solo or redo some vocals or whatever. But that's kind it's a of foundation you can build on. Yeah. yeah. And, and and the most important part of the music, really. Yeah. You know, I we as musicians tend to get so close to the picture that we sometimes lose perspective on what are the elements that really hit the listener hard, really hit the untrained ear hard. And rhythm is such a big part of it. And the way all the you know, and that's just what's so badass about bluegrass, the way all the stringed instruments interlock to create this just grinding tight, you know, rhythm feel that that's kind of where the money's at. So we do that and, and we do the song a few times until we have one that really captures that thing. But, you know, we've been, we've been doing this for whew, like almost like, like 15 years now. So yeah. we've learned a thing or two about how to play together. And that's ultimately what we're trying to capture when we go into record. Do you feel like you are trying to capture that that live string duster sound or do you try to use the studio more as its own thing separate from maybe how you would do something on stage does that make sense yeah absolutely i guess i i kind of think of it sort of the other way around like the studio and the and the pristine sound of the these instruments that's 
that's the thing, you know, the, the live mm. show is almost something different, you know, crafted for this I get it, yeah. big room. And as you know, amplifying these instruments is, is still kind of an imperfect science. And I, I think you can get them to sound really good in a pretty loud listening environment. But when we're in the studio, we're really trying to capture, you know, natural sounds and the tones of these instruments. You know, we're, we're all, bluegrass is, there, is our common thread. And so we come from that world where the acoustic sound is really the thing. And we do try to ultimately replicate that in the live show, but it, it does end up being something different. And, and that's because of the space and the volume of the room, but also the life that the music takes on when you're in front of all these people. And th these s sections that are more kind of improvised and and more of an adventure where we're really experimenting, yeah, they just have a life of their own live and that informs the sound as well. So, and we've tried different things in the studio, but that's just kind of where we're at now is a more natural sound and a pretty close recreation of what it's like acoustically, I think. But that seems to be your reference point is what you are able to get in that studio, that pure yeah, essence. I think so. And I, again, I think that relates a lot to the fact that bluegrass is the thing that brings us together. You know, it's, it's crazy in the last... 15 years in the time that we've been a band to see how the perception of bluegrass, the term, the music has changed. And when we started out, you know, it wasn't necessarily the hippest thing to be a bluegrass band out there. There just wasn't, there weren't people looking for that in, you know, I don't want to say mainstream, but just it didn't have like a wide popular appeal to young fans, voracious yeah. music fans. Well, now it does. Yeah, but, not as much of a novelty act or exactly, something like that. Exactly, like yeah. old school festivals and kind of like, you know, your grandfather's music or something like that. Um, <laughs> now it's it's not like that. But all along, I've always said, you know, if someone asks me like what kind of music we play, uh, we're a bluegrass band, you know, yeah. we're, we're five piece, all strings, vocal harmonies. And what I would say is really the main determining factor, which is, like we play our instruments in the style of people who are descendant from bluegrass, you know, three finger Scruggs style and, you know, a fiddle playing lines of 16th notes and the backbeat chop on fiddle and dobro, bass playing the downbeats. I mean, these are the sort of classic instrumental roles that these instruments play in bluegrass. And so, you know, you could play a Metallica song, but if you had like a three finger Scruggs role, I would say you know, that it, it's bluegrass. Um, it right. doesn't depend as much to me on the material as it does on the way that the instruments and the voices are bringing the music to life. And that's always, you know, that that's always w the way that we've done it. And, and just to tie it back to what we were saying about the studio, as you know, the acoustic tones and the ability to jam acoustically is just like such a magical thing about the kind mm -hmm. of music that we play. And ultimately, the the most inspiring kind of time you ever hear it, and so that's that's what we're trying to create in the studio, and that's what we're trying to make the baseline of our sound. If that makes sense, it makes a lot of sense. So, so to to go back to this concept of maybe holding these new songs close to your vest or up your sleeve or whatever poker analogy we want to use, 
Uh, selfishly, I have to ask. So February 18th is when this new album hits. And that happens to be the date that you're playing in Detroit. So it, am, am I going to see like a whole new show for the first time is that is that what i can count on here are you putting me are you putting us on the spot here keith is that is this is well, this you can, did you, you just can't make go back on did, it did you just make you 12 say. requests for the detroit show <laughs> <laughs> we'll see i think that some of it will sort of trickle into the repertoire but you know it'll be like on that tour that surrounds the release day that things usually start to really come out and then it's a good question. I can't even really remember how it played out for the last record, but around that time is when everything will come to life live. And that's just as exciting for us as it is for the audience, you know, to have all these new songs and, you know, we, we've got to practice the stuff, but it's, it's in us and we wrote this music. And so there's a already a strong connection there. And then, you know, you, you set it, you sort of set it in motion. You bring it to life with the people right. and you see what happens. And it's a cool moment for us just to see where things go. Right. I've, I've followed you guys long enough to see how some of the new songs evolve and what they turn into. And that's, that's gotta be exciting just to know that you're at the beginning of that and see which ones turn into staples and exactly. which ones maybe, maybe fall off the set list, but yeah, that's, it, it's exciting either way. That's what it's all about. You know, that, yeah. I think that's why we got into this is to make original music, make original art and play it live in, in front of people. And I've always just really thought there's so many things that comprise a life as a touring musician. And there is so many things that you have to do to get to the gig and set everything up. And, you know, you're a business owner and then it's working on all the music, but that mode of working out the next 12, 13 songs is always a really exciting time because that's, that's why we got into this. And I always think about it in relation to a discussion that comes up a lot these days, which is like, why do people still make albums? And I can tell you as an artist, forget about the business side of things. Forget about what people can, how people consume music or whether albums are worth making in terms of will they sell. And, and think about the artistic side of things. When you create one new song, you know, a single or whatever, well, there's a little moment in time there. But when you create 12 to 15 new songs, and, and there are some songs that we work out that don't make the album, that's when you really evolve as mm. an act and an artist. That's when you're forced to stretch and take everything that you know and then combine this new creativity, these new ideas, whether that's technical things that you do with your instrument to bring the music to life or a set of chord changes. You know, you're, you're just, it's the latest and greatest of what you've got. And, you know, that that's just like a, a great payoff and a moment when I, I feel like we as artists really evolve. And, and that's why I'll kind of always vouch for the album. You know, I, it yeah. may not, it may not make the most sense from a marketing standpoint and, but in, and it can too. I'm just saying that's sort of the perception of it yeah. but from an artistic standpoint. It's such an amazing thing for us as artists and human beings. Yeah. That's cool to keep in mind. Well, let's dive into this one. So, uh, you know, the first thing a lot of listeners are going to experience about this is 
seeing the cover art when they are about to purchase it or download it or whatever they're doing. And your band is usually all about the good vibes, but this one's kind of, uh, it's kind of dark. So what, uh, what it's are, not kind of dark. <laughs> it's, it's, it's downright, it's downright disturbing. It's disturbing. Uh, so what, what's the mood or expectation that the band wanted to give listeners by going for this one? Sure. Good question. And it's great artwork. I should, I should add. It's, it's cool. Like really striking. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And I, I was excited when I saw it. I think, you know, there, there are a few different answers that jump to mind, but as we have evolved as a band, you know, you, you got to try different things and we're not just all happy go lucky people all the time. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think we are great, very grateful to do what we do, but look at the world these days. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy place to be. And I, I think recognizing that and being open about that is, is important. And as we get a little older as, as people, we just observe and feel the world in new ways. And then a lot of that stuff comes out in song and we didn't necessarily get together to coordinate all the thematic stuff on this album. And it, it doesn't all run in one vein, but there was certainly mm -hmm. a common thread. And I think it's indicative of the fact that we're just noticing different things and, and feeling like um, speaking out on different things that are important to speak out on and offering our perspective. And I do think that there is a message of hope in there too, even if mm -hmm. the cover art is a, a recognition of you know, one realistic side of the equation that there, you know, there, there are a lot of challenging situations out there and that's not lost on us, but I think it's just a little bit more of a serious statement. And I think that that that's what that cover art reflects. I think you're right. I, I was only able to give it a, a couple listens, so uh, I don't really have it ingrained, but yeah, for, for every maybe depressing or conflicting view, there seems to be also an expression of let's rise above this. Let's turn our feet forward and, and try to get past this in, in a, in a good way. And we need um, to, and, yeah. and we need to, we all need to be thinking about that kind of thing. It's not just about recognizing the challenges that are out there. It's about trying to figure out me meaningful ways that we as individuals can you know, make, make a difference. And so we're doing our best and, and trying to sort of lead that charge of openness, but also positivity and positive change. And, you know, every album is just sort of a statement of where you're at as people. And that's another cool thing about the album and this collective, yeah, statement that the band makes. And that's just what came out this time. Cool. Uh, Let's get into the music. So it starts with Hardline, which is kind of a real recognizable classic string dusters, like riff grass kind of thing. Let's all have a conversation across the great divide. Listen to the voices coming from the other side. Don't give up believing what you think is right. Let's all hear someone else to see the light. Some kind of way we can talk it out and hit the higher ground. Find a 
total riff grass. Riff grass, catchy, catchy chorus, great solos. As you kind of mentioned, we're in a, a Spotify singles era, but you know, this is still an album and this led off the album. So it, was there a particular consideration in leading off with Hardline? Well, sequencing an album is kind of an art unto itself. And mm-hmm. it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily go like, okay, here's Hardline. This is going to be the first song on the album. And you, you really have to consider all the other songs. And I think this one is a good lead off because for one thing, it is sort of that a very typical duster sound that grinding, um, heavy sort of, yeah, like you said, riff grass with these sort of hooks that we play together. And that's a very quintessential sound. And then the the subject matter, again, is really in keeping with the themes that I was just talking about a moment ago. So I guess in some way, this is just a good opening statement. Here's kind of what this is all about. Here's what we sound like. And, and then, you know, we just kind of go from there. Yeah, right on. And then, so whereas that is sort of a classic string duster sound, the second track, I'm Not Alone, this one is a little bit of a departure, a little more of like a, it's finger picked for a while, folky shuffle kind of feel. So talk about that, I guess for, um, for one thing, from a banjo playing standpoint, I, I know from experience, it can be challenging to play with a finger-picked guitar uh, and not get in each other's way. So from a, from a musical nuts and bolts standpoint, how do you approach something like that? Well, I should say uh, this is, I think, I think this is my favorite song on the album. It really hits me. I love the, the chorus, and it's just got a lot of feeling in the way that the vocal you know comes out it's really uh, i love this one and you're right it's got this kind of it never like locks into a real lockstep groove it's this kind of cruising like airy groove and Mm -hmm. that's always a fun a fun vibe i feel like for me to play you know it's not like necessarily the hard driving thing and a lot of the the tonalities are more sort of pretty you've got more like major sevens and and I think the finger picking might have been added later on this one. I think there's a f- I think there's a few two rhythm guitar parts, and 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 this will be something that we'll do is like add a layer on top. And these and whereas you know on previous albums that might have been like kick drum or piano, these days it's usually just another version of the acoustic instruments that we're already playing. And. Yeah. It's got doubled fiddles, too, if I'm remembering right. Or not doubled, you know, sort of a, a twin yeah. ethereal fiddle part to it. I think you're right. I This one, this might have been one of the ones where we where we did some sort of creative overdubs. But I don't know. I, I think that being so used to playing with each other, I don't necessarily think of, like, one groove is necessarily easier to lock into than another. This one to me is actually also a pretty kind of quintessential string dusters groove. But if I remember correctly, it was, you know, strumming guitar and um, the rolling banjo is a lot of what dictates the rhythm on that kind of thing, Um, which is cool. It's like you, you have more of a bass rhythmic role and it's just, you know, locking in with Travis playing those downbeats and trust and go, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So the next one, I didn't know. We 
we have to talk about these drums. So the 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 light shuffle of the last one that'll get you like a, a bluegrass police uh, misdemeanor. Look out! But, but this one, there's some there's some felonious activity <laughs> happening here. So it's it sounded like to me on this one you're going for almost more of like a radio friendly country song type of vibe. Was that is that accurate at all? Or well, not, not to say that you're going for the a radio hit or something, but just that type of sound. Yeah, well, it's never bad to be on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to craft a song, I think, for a specific destination can, you know, we've done that. Everyone's tried that. It can sort of lead you down some weird roads. We we just had Mark Levy from Circles Around the Sun play drums, and we just had him in because we, we knew – we wanted to try some stuff and we, we just wanted one or two tracks to have a different flavor. And mm-hmm. I, th- I still think they sound very quintessentially string duster, but if I remember correctly, you know, we just, we showed Mark the song and then we got in there and that was just the way we tried it the first time and we liked it. And yeah. sometimes that energy again, can be the most compelling. Maybe not the thing you notice when you're looking at everything under a microscope, but just that raw rhythmic feel that listeners really relate to. And Mark is awesome. He just locked right in with us. And of course, we have so much experience playing together. That's just kind of what came out when we let it rip the first time. I might be forgetting things, but it's pretty rare for you to have guest musicians on on the albums. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong. I mean, we, we've done some stuff that's like guest specific. We did ladies and gentlemen and we've, yeah, we've mm-hmm. had, a, we've had, you know, there were some, the, the horns from rubble bucket were on silver sky and okay. a few little things here and there, but there's a lot of, there's five of us and plenty of, you know, artistic input and plenty of voices to speak. So it's, you know, we don't often feel like we need something else. It's just a question of trying to create, trying to take a few songs and create something unique so that the music from the album just covers a little bit of a a broader, wider spectrum, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And then the next one means to an end. This, this one definitely sounds like you know, the, the sort of rager that will is destined to become a, a live show classic. I love like the, you know, the high energy, the sort of seasicky build up that, that happens. Yep. Talk about what it's like to try to get group dynamics in a studio, because that's notoriously challenging as well. Yeah, it's a great question. It ties back to what I was saying before about how these songs and the music, it exists in different forms, in different environments. And we know that there's this thing that happens live where the music really takes on a raw energy and that's when you get a lot of those like tension and release builds like that, that thing that you hear on means to an end. And every now and then, you know, there's been a few times where I feel like we've, we've done a 
really good job in the studio of capturing that energy because it's hard. And I think mm -hmm. you, you know you're you're in the studio, you're under the microscope, and sort of at first you're just focused on making sure you you lock everything down and play your part right and play in time and all that good stuff. But it really the music really comes to life when you're mostly listening to the other people and things are just flowing out. And that's what I like about when we take a stab at recreating that live energy. It it can be a little hit or miss, but there have been some good successes for us over the years in the studio. I, I remember when we did Black Elk and feeling that energy in the studio when we had the sessions. I remember we were a few takes deep and it was like taking it out of us. You know, it was, we were really really letting the music rip and that's what that's what you have to do for a song like this I mean, the song really dictates that style of energy and we knew that it was going that way all along and when we arrange and think through these songs of course we're thinking about the final destination for this stuff too and as you said this one clearly has the sound of something that will be right at home in the live setting for our band just high energy big kind of tension and release build and you know those are the big moments during a show you know those are the right. there there should be a few of those every set and there's different types of moments that draw everyone in and different things that resonate with different people but you're always going to get a few of these that are really designed to bring the energy of the show and the crowd to the peak yeah the roller coaster that's right Folks, we are in a golden age of online instrument instruction, and at the top of that world is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation has streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, so you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Check out the courses they have and this is just for banjo you could get beginning or bluegrass banjo with bill evans Clawhammer banjo with evie laden wade ward style banjo with bruce molsky the banjo according to danny barnes and contemporary bluegrass banjo with wes corbett each of those courses include high quality video lessons downloadable notation and tab play along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play and the best thing yet is you're going to get your first month free just by being a listener of this show. So go to pegheadnation.com and use promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout and claim your free month of the best instruction out there. And if you find yourself needing a banjo or accessories to get ready for those Peghead Nation courses, I highly recommend you check out Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source of new used and vintage stringed instruments, including banjos, guitars, violins, mandolins, ukuleles, all that stuff. They're going to have the best instruments you can find anywhere. And we're talking everything from the more affordable instruments for people starting out on up through the most highly sought after vintage instruments. Elderly Instruments has been family owned since 1972. And if you can't make it to their Lansing, Michigan showroom, you can see their full selection at elderly.com or give them a call at 517-372-7880 for some professional advice on all of your banjo and other stringed instrument needs. 
And you know what all these stringed instruments have in common? They all sound better with GHS strings. GHS Strings is another sponsor of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, and I'm proud to say they have been made in Battle Creek, Michigan since 1974. And if you don't want to take my word for it, maybe you'll believe such people as J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and Bela Fleck, just a few of the many, many users of GHS Strings. So go check them out, ghsstrings.com. They have a wide selection of gauged sets so that no matter what you're looking for, you'll be able to find something there. Pearl of Carolina. I love the guitar and banjo solo trading. And um, I really want to dig into this because something that I've observed about your playing is that, especially going back to like maybe your solo albums, there's a lot of cool subtleties to your playing that I think get swallowed up in a string duster setting. And for good reason, it's a real dense mm-hmm. type of uh, type of sound. But I think maybe some of that actually comes out in this track. I don't know if it's just something in the mix where the, the banjo is a little more up top. But uh, uh, to look at it more of a general sense, do you think there's a different level of intricacy that you try to employ when you're crafting a studio type of solo uh, versus what you attempt live? You know, it, it really all depends on the song. I think I remember when we did those trades that we, I think, took one or two passes at it and we were doing it, the two of us, because it's trades, obviously, and we sort of hit on that thing and then we we refined that one time where we sort of come together. But you know, in the studio, you can capture more intricacy, you know, and mm-hmm. you you can play in ways that, like you say, maybe don't cut through everything at a live show. But, you know, we, we try to recreate those dynamics live. I do think sometimes when you're soloing or playing lead in the studio, it, it is just a more controlled environment. And mm-hmm. I know that's that's something that's always been really challenging for me with banjo is, I guess the easiest way to describe it is I play too hard at shows. And, and there's a pretty consistent challenge for me in my practice and also practicing, you know, art craft on stage to try and reduce the tension in my playing. And, you know, there's been some real successes along the way and some real kind of challenges along the way, but, and we, we can talk about this more after, um, you know, we blast through the album, but in the, in the last two years or when the pandemic started, I made some big changes to my right-hand technique and thought a lot, a lot, a lot about right-hand technique because I felt like at points in my career, you know, I just felt like there was an inconsistency to my playing that revolved around just playing stuff that would like get through the mix and was powerful, but was also intricate and maybe like more noty in that live environment. And I think when you play too hard and there's too much tension in the music, you end up playing maybe simpler phrases or figures, but just really nailing down the rhythm because that is what translates. But that's something that I've thought about. And, you know, one area where I really want to try and up my game as a musician, as a banjo player. So I, I switched from anchoring one finger on the head to anchoring two right. um, at the beginning of 
2020. And it took a long time to really start feeling the muscle memory. And I kind of went back and forth, but always sensed that there was, you know, more down that road. And now I'm, I'm starting to get to where it feels more comfortable. And it's a, that's a whole other nerdy banjo podcast in and of itself. We could talk more about that, but paying a lot of attention to how my right hand posture can let me play really authoritatively, but also be relaxed mm -hmm. and articulate all the ideas that I know that I can play. And that's, you know, that's a challenge for all of us on this weird technical instrument, you know, with these three finger picks and all and, and how accurate you need to be to play in a convincing scrug style. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I think live sometimes, you know, I've just felt as a player inconsistent. And so that was my answer to try and move in that direction of, like I said, playing still effortlessly, but powerfully and accurately and feeling really anchored and grounded on the instrument. I, I would definitely love to hear more about this because that's something that I deal with too. And I think probably all of us to some extent, it's it's just one of the big conflicts about needing to play live and yeah, yeah, per perfecting your your art. There's always some sort of compromise, it seems like. Well, and I feel like there's times where I really can do it and then there's times where it's really challenging. So mm. I know that I can do it. The question <laughs> is how to create that consistency. And I just yeah. know that there's there's part of playing bluegrass that is unique in the way that it is so technique heavy. For example, in my studio here where I produce music, like on Transbanjo, I played almost all the instruments, you know, and I'll go to play a bass line on a synthesizer. And it's like the thought of technique is just not even there. You're just focused on the music. You know, I could go to play a, a drum part to layer, you know, part of the rhythm and I'll play it on the, the first, there is no warming up, you know, there, there is no technical proficiency. It's just sensing the music, but on banjo, you need a really high bar of technical technical proficiency. I mean, for the style that I play, there's all sorts of styles and and maybe they're, you know, not all of them are like this, but, and I mean, it's nobody's fault but my own, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and as you well know, you know, as a great banjo player yourself, like we come from a world where the musicianship bar is just high. Mm -hmm. And I know that if I'm warming up for a show, and I feel like my technique is on point and I can connect to the relaxed power that I conjure up in my practice sessions, there's a confidence that gets flowing and then you just will go for anything. And honestly, even if it's not there, those little mistakes I don't think impact the statement of the music if you're really feeling what you're playing. But a lot of times I feel like stringed instrument players, you know, do go into a like a kind of like survival mode just get through this thing solidly in time yeah. and so without the, crashing yeah yeah and and we we want to play with flow we want to emote through the music and to do that we ultimately can't be focused on technique we need to be just focused on the feeling of the music but it is that technical proficiency that kind of sets us free to do that so there's this sort of catch 22 there and you need to work on both sides of it, the technical and the sort of performance head game aspect of it. But 
finding the balance there and attacking those two things and finding the right formula for me has been something that I've definitely thought a lot about. I, I know that we're already on a tangent, but have you developed any actual approach to make sure that you are in that type of situation for a gig where your your technical proficiencies aren't what you're focusing on so that you sure. can actually just focus focus on playing the music? So, and that's that's really why I'd made this technical change because I felt like with only one finger anchored on the head, though I did have some really great nights, my understanding of how to get into that zone was was not necessarily strong enough. That is to say, I'd even have that inconsistency in my practice. So I didn't have a lockdown approach to how my right hand should feel. It kind of felt different at different times. And of course, you know, th th this is all a matter of perspective and I'm going to be my harshest critic like we all are, but that's yeah. what drives us to be better musicians. And, and, and a lot of this is probably more for me than for anyone else, but I just want to put myself in a position to be as emotive as I can and getting this technical thing ironed out so that there was more of a consistency to it so that I could find that zone and know the path there more clearly than yeah. I had felt previously. That was sort of the goal. So when I am at a show, I'm trying to connect myself to the, the practice mode that I spend most of my time in here at home. So when we're practicing, we might be working on, you know, tunes or scales or, or buffing out our technique, like making sure we do this or that with our hand. But then ultimately, we really want to get to the real stuff. And what we're practicing is not necessarily what we do with our hands, but entering the zone that we want to be in when we perform, whether it's on stage or in a jam right. or whatever. So that's what I'm trying to do mostly in my practice. And then when I'm warming up for a show, I'm just accessing that pathway that I've built. The more and more diligent, better time that I've spent doing that in my practice, the easier it will be to access when I get ready for a show. That's kind of how I look at it. And then ultimately, it's just about being in the moment and listening and you know, letting your instrument do the talking. And it's not about being perfect. And it's not about recreating something you did in the past. It's just about being in the moment. And I know that when I make the best music, I'm not thinking about the technique. But having put the work right. in is a lot of what helps me get there. Yeah, it's kind of about not having it hold you back. If you're thinking about how your picks feel funny, then you're you're not going to play your best no matter what. If if that's what you're worried about, yeah, you can't. You know, nobody cares <laughs> about how your picks feel. <laughs> and I hate to break it to you, banjo players, but you know, nobody thinks about any of this stuff. All they can t they don't know they don't know anything about what you're supposed to sound like. They don't have 1% of the preconceived notions that you do as someone who every time you play, you know, you hear it. They know when you are in the moment and believing in what you're doing. And, you know, not it's, it's a work in progress for everyone. Not every show is perfect from start to finish. You know, we're always working on it and there's different songs and different things that are challenging, but that is ultimately the goal is not to be thinking about any of that stuff, just to be listening to whoever you're playing with, to be in the moment with the audience, the listeners, and then just to let the music flow. Agreed. Going back to this aspect of being able to play some intricacies on, on an album that maybe you don't uh, attempt live, a, a real trademark 
panda thing that I that I hear on like the down from Carolina, or I'm sorry, Pearl of Carolina, um, are your slides, which which I've been hearing you do forever, like those upward slides. Do you view that as like a real strong part of your style? Because I, I feel like I do. Yeah, you know, when I when I play single string style, I really try to work out as many shifts as I can. I think that's what you're hearing. So, so yeah, so as far as the slides, you know, I try to work out shifts on different strings. And so I think when I end up playing single string stuff, you know, you're going to hear a lot of that uh see So, you know, that that's just playing through like some G major diatonic stuff. But I think like for exercises, I'll pr I'll work on shifting on the third string. And then I, I sort of broke out of that at the end. But the point is just trying to find all of the all of the different permutations that you can and different ways to get like from, you know, one chord position up to the next, up to the next, up to, you know, like always landing ultimately on chord tones, you know. And it's like practicing the scales is one thing, but then practicing like how to get out of them and back into your regular playing or regular playing. That's not a good way of saying that. <laughs> I, I think of banjo like in, in sort of, it's like we're playing two instruments at once, right? And we play these phrases and, 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 then, we, and then we rest, you know? And then we rest, but when we rest, we roll. So finding, going through the scales and the permutations is important, but just as important is knowing how to get out of them and get rooted on different chords. Does that make sense? Yeah, back to your rest position. Yeah, exactly. As it, as it were. Yeah. Right. Like like if you were a horn player, that'd be where you would take a breath. Mm -hmm. But we as banjo players, we keep all that context of the music rolling. And that's just something I've I've thought a lot about. And when it comes to single string, yeah, I just I don't know. I've worked on a lot of a lot of slidings to It's just a, 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 yeah. a sound that I'm, I don't know, that I'm drawn to. And, and, and this is another thing about this, this technique of playing with, with uh, two fingers anchored that I'm really finding I can play better single string stuff with just my thumb and index. Whereas when I had uh -huh. one finger anchored, I played with all three. So everything <laughs> yeah. was like thumb index, thumb middle, thumb index, thumb middle. And while I still do that a good bit, being strong with your thumb and index is a 
important thing on banjo. And I remember hearing a great banjo player named Pete Kelly, who was a guy in the Northeast and played with Buddy Miriam. We were talking one day about our mutual favorite banjo player, Tom Adams, who for me is like, you know, my top three all time. And Pete said that Tom was just relentless with his thumb and index. And he's not a single string player. You know, he's just like a Scruggs player with a twist, but he plays so powerfully. And that's what, you know, I, I feel like that's, the baseline of powerful banjo. And this might get back to that question you were asking about sort of like simplifying things in a live environment. I want to make sure that I have that rhythm locked down, but you know, that doesn't mean you can't play intricate. And for me, that's just one of the challenges of banjo and something that I'm trying to grow and improve at. And, and the point of, um, of, you know, moving to the two finger down thing. Yeah, crazy. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, always a work in progress it seems like, but yeah. Big time. Keep 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 pushing forward. Let's move on down from the mountain. This is the first time if I'm not mistaken that we hear Andy Hall on uh lead vocals. So him being one of your lead singers, that was a little surprising to me. Is that ever like a a sequencing consideration in in terms of lead singing sequence? It is. It's always a consideration. It's always a consideration in the set list as well. Mixing up the singers. And that's one thing that's unique about the String Dusters. We don't have a front man. We don't have a Mm -hmm. true lead singer. The instrumental duties are really spread around. And I do sing. I do sing every night. I don't, I rarely sing lead, but you know, the, I did hear some Casey Jones on the live stream a few <laughs> nights ago. So. There was there was definitely some Casey Jones, and I, I love <laughs> and I love to sing, but that was never like my passion when we were starting out. Whereas the other four guys, that was really a thing for them. But the amazing blessing in disguise of of all that is that I get to write all the instrumental music for these badasses, you know, who yeah. get to bring my stuff to life and I get to write an instrumental tune on every record. It's great. And 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 then some, you know, more that we do live as well. But it, that's always a consideration. We want to just have as much balance and flow to things as we possibly can. And it's not like one person is always going to have the lead off track on the record. It's It's really just, we let the music dictate those things. And that I think is how decisions like that get made. But he wasn't being punished like by <laughs> um, saying that you're, you're the last one to make, make an appearance on he, the lead. No, vocals. no, no. He wasn't, he wasn't being punished. And okay. you know, you all, you're all going to have a time when you're the last guy to sing lead or when you're in the last, <laughs> you know, that's, that's just the nature of playing in a band like this. It really is. Yeah. It's a democracy and, and it, it's designed to give all five of us, you know, the the best outlet for this part of our musical world a, as we possibly can. And and that's that's the most amazing thing about this band. I feel so lucky to have connected with these guys because our instincts work really well together, but what we want to do musically really syncs up in this amazing way where everybody gets a chance to do their thing every night on every album. And that's hard to find with other musicians and, you know, to, to find that synchronicity, you know, that's an an important thing for us, something that we've worked on, but a lot of that comes naturally. And that's one of the things I think that really gives us longevity as a band. 
Yeah, yeah, agreed. In general, is it safe for String Dusters fans to assume that whoever is singing lead wrote the song? Is that almost always true? That is almost always true. There are a few cases where that's not true, but not on this album. That is the case on every song on this album. Got it. Um, And you just referenced your opportunity to write the instrumental on each record. So I I have a feeling we're coming to that with uh, Revolution next. Is that the Panda original? It sure is, yeah. And a tune that I originally wrote for, you know, the the Trad Plus thing and the demo that the guys got was like this whomping electronic track that I had brewed up (laughs) in my studio. And it was all halftime. You know, instead of like, it was like, that was the beat was much more halftime. And initially that's how we were playing it, but it's definitely gotten sort of, again, the kind of quintessential duster treatment, especially in those first two parts. But when I wrote this song, I was definitely thinking about live for that third part and coming to that third part at a show I know enough at this point about what our shows feel like and how the music unfolds and what hits and what doesn't. It's great. That that all informs not only my writing, but most of what I work on as a musician. That's one of the great joys and the great gifts of being in an ensemble like this over years that you have a focus for your music. You have mm-hmm. a thing to work toward. And that's a that's a piece of learning and understanding music that I encourage everyone to try to develop whether or not you're in a band, you know, work on a repertoire that means something to you, find some people that you can play those songs with. And that's what lets you develop as a musician and develop a sound. And I've tried to embrace that not only in the way that I work on my playing and the things that I focus on, but also in in the writing. And that's sort of, you know, when this tune when I was working on this tune, I remember I needed a, I wanted a third part that would happen like one time early in the song and then it would go back to, you know, a few minutes of that bluegrass feel and then you'd come back to that third part that had been played once and it's like going to be this big sort of aggressive kind of funk. Yeah, slamming. Yeah, yeah, just kind of a mean sound, like real dominant. After all those cool diatonic chords, you're sort of in this one mode and then it delivers you to this other section that's really heavy and hits hard. And it's, it's just cool to have a context to design and craft your music and your playing for. You know, that that's just a great guidepost, like I said, that we should all try to create whether you're in a band or not. Yeah, totally. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that it was originally a Trad Plus thing because I know you took classical samples for that recording and my notes even say that this one, I thought at least that first part almost has a hint of like some classical sounding stuff. I'm, I'm not versed enough in classical to even reference it in any way, but. Well, I'm, and I'm not really either. So I don't know if that's a fair <laughs> connection to make, but I do think, again, coming back to this idea that an album and the creation of all this music really evolves your sound. I know when I did Trans Banjo, just having some of those sounds in and underneath the music informed the way that I wrote. And the process of creating that album was not really linear. I would have some songs were existing on the banjo first. Some songs were existing as these sort of experimental tracks on my recording rig 
before I before I ever did anything with them. And 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 these weird ethereal vinyl samples that I make here in my studio would then inform the way that I write. So I I'm sure there is some of that going on, but you know it's great to have the fiddle to play all these melodies with me. And then, you know, to have Falco, who is just an unrelenting beast on rhythm guitar. I mean, he's the most mm -hmm. amazing rhythm guitar player. He really is. He's, he does like 10 things at once. And then the dobro chop, that's like, a you know, dobro and fiddle are our mandolin chop, our backbeat. Right. And, you know, Travis is just such a house on the bass. So I got, you get that rhythm section going and then I get to play the melodies with Jeremy. It's like, don't, don't, don't let on to the other guys that this is my formula, my way of scamming them <laughs> into playing all my music that I'm writing over the years. It's a good deal. You could just uh, fly above it all, pretty much. Exactly. That's cool. Is there anything else you want to add about how you compose pieces? I mean, you, you already touched on it a little bit, that it can go from banjo to band or, or vice versa. But is there anything else you want to add about your approach to composing or when you know what parts will will fit together? Sure. I think I love composing and composing and in this style and this instrument, learning to compose and, and working on your improvisation, which as we all know is basically everything that you play is improvisation. And people who don't know the music are amazed to hear that. You know, they think that we have these more set parts throughout the song, but really a lot of the bedrock of what we work on in this style is playing tight rhythm, rhythm parts and grooving, you know, but there's, there's a lot of crossover between that and what ends up being improvising and then even composing, which is just really slow improvising. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it totally. is, it's like your most thought out thing that you can come up with. So when you're working on improvising ideas, it's the same thing as working on writing although you're trying to find as many permutations of these ideas. And then when you're writing something, you're just trying to find one cohesive thought from beginning to end. And for me, a lot of what I do when I write is to create tracks in my studio that are like, oh, okay, I got this A part and here I'll loop this and then I'll be playing that. And then as I play it and then I'm three or four times through, then I start to get a sense of, oh, this could be a really cool chord to get me into that B part. Then I'll shut the rig off and I'll start writing based off that. And then I'll record that banjo and I'll listen to it and I'll say, oh, you know, this needs a, a third part that maybe only occurs a few times in the song, like in Revolution. And I'll do a similar thing. I'll loop it and I'll just really pay attention to when I'm coming to the end of that second section where this third unwritten section will be. I'm just sensing what will come next. And I've played and written enough that I know a lot of, like, for example, the, the chord options that I could go to. Okay, if I want right. this type of sound, you know, if I want to go to, like, a real magical, ethereal sound, maybe I go to, like, the two major, you know, or if I want to get into the, a really bluesy groove, I'm going to go flat three, flat seven. You know, if I want to get to, like, that majestic, like, building to a resolution, you know, a five dominant. So, that to me was always one of the great gifts of going to music school was learning what these options are, but that's not going to make you great music. You know, you, you ultimately got to really feel and understand the statement that you're trying to make. And then that is a great tool to helping you understand what's out there. But ultimately it's about 
feeling something and expressing that through the instrument. So that's that's a lot of what I do. Stylistically, I just try to leave it like wide, wide, wide open. And I do sort of have my own styles that I gravitate toward. But when I go to write something, it's just all about seeing where things go. And if they go somewhere that they've never gone before, great. And just try to be, it sounds like, really open to what the music wants to have happen exactly there. exactly instead of just falling back on the same old mechanisms that you use and and that again another advantage of having a studio here and trying things demo wise when you start to build a track well that'll inform ultimately w- what you write so you can you can push it in a lot of different directions in that way too but yes what you said there is very true it's really just all about being open to where this thing is going. And if it goes to a place that you often go, but that's the most musical thing, great. If it takes you somewhere brand new that you've never been, great. Letting it dictate things, that's an important skill of being a writer. And, you know, just always a challenge. That's where you stretch. That's where you grow. A really cool thing about your compositions is that they often do have different sections with different feels, sometimes two or three or four sections. Are you the kind of person who will sit down and finish out a piece? Or are you more like you have a thousand 15 second song ideas on your computer right now that at any given time you might go through those and maybe decide something to work on? I think the number is more like 10,000. I'm being honest. Cool. I have a lot of solo albums. I have up. voice memos to last a lifetime over here. Yeah. And I use those for improvising ideas or song ideas. And and then every few months I go through it. And out of a hundred things, twenty are really cool. And out of those twenty, four or five become improvising concepts, four or five become the, the seed of, of a song. And Uh, One project I'm working on right now is to sort of take a lot of the B-sides, a lot of the stuff I've recorded in my studio, whether it's little banjo riffs or whatever, and buff some of that out and turn it into music, because that's a skill too, you know, writing the first piece, the first bit of a song, that's like the fun part. Finishing things in a cohesive way, that's a really skilled part of writing too. But when I bring, like a tune like Revolution, when I bring it to the String Dusters, I have a rough idea of, like the melody is going to be stated up front, then there's going to be some solos. Then there's going to be some written thing that we come to and play together to really get us to this third thing we're going to in a really deliberate fashion. And then we try it. And a lot of times it evolves. And of course, I've got four other awesome musicians there to give me their ideas. And that's one real strength of our band that I'm always proud of is everyone is so open to each other's ideas. And that is what helps us be such a unit. And there's just a trust there. You know, I know that if I'm proposing this idea, but a couple of guys want to do something different, well, even if my idea doesn't get through, I know that what they're suggesting is good, even if it's yeah. not my thing. So so we, we go through that and then, you know, we just start playing it and we make tweaks as need be. But I, I usually go with like, a few parts, maybe an idea that we need another part, but that's going to be in this key. And here, this riff could be the intro. This riff could be the tag. And then we just start putting it together as a band. And I almost leave some things unformed for that very purpose because I know that I've got all these these other great pickers who you know, could probably bring a lot to the table. So let's see what they have to add. Yeah. 
and again, who you have this immense trust and that's right. So yeah, perfect. Spirits wild. I don't, I don't really have uh, specific notes, but I, I really enjoyed this one. It's, it's definitely a, a catchy song. Probably going to be a crowd favorite. Anything to add to that one? Not really. You know, this again, another kind of like quintessential, like feel good bluegrass groove with some halftime. That's just like a home run at live shows, you know. Right. So having an idea of where all of this is headed as as it relates to the live show is important and a natural part of the process. And we're always we're always trying to stock up on, you know, songs that we know will have an easy home in the set list. And there's always a few of those on each album, I think. Yeah, for sure. Let's skip ahead to uh, the last track, How Do You Know? I really love the, the lyrical banjo solo in this. And we just talked about some of your composing techniques. We've talked about the advantages of playing studio or live. Maybe talk about how the composing technique translates to preparing a solo like this for the studio. When when you're presented with a song, you know you're going to have your little banjo part that you're going to need to to fill. Is there a way that you approach composing a solo for, for other people's songs? Yeah, I think, like I said before, you know, improvising and composing, they're, they're kind of the same thing. And mm-hmm. when we're in the studio, everything is is a little mini composition because this is going to be the thing that bears many, many repeated listens. So it's a function of, well, I, I guess the best way to say it is like this. Some songs... I feel like don't need a lot of preparation. This is a, a tonality or a groove that is just like automatic for the band. And I already know what I'm doing in this kind of vibe. And so almost as a plan, I want to have no plan to let, you know, just what comes out or what's going to come out. I just want, want that to, to emerge. You know, I guess just trust again, just trust your preparation and what you've learned how to do. And then other songs, you know, I go to play them and it's a bunch of crap. <laughs> and I got to I got to I got to zoom out and say, "Okay, what let's think about this. You know, what what are the other voices doing? What are the other instruments doing?" And, you know, that oftentimes that's a moment where you stretch outside what you normally do. And again, I think that's a great time to do that when you're making a new album. That's when we evolve as artists. So, you know, if you do take the time on certain tracks to compose a little thing or find something new that you don't normally do and try to work that in, and then that becomes part of the live show. And there you go. Your, your playing is evolving and it's evolving in a context to fit this band. and, And that's, you know, that, I think that's what happens on some of these songs where, just forced to think about it a little bit harder, or maybe it's something new that's not totally in my comfort zone. There's plenty of times to solo on a record, on a show, 
but playing yeah. rhythm parts and playing together with everyone and again just trying to be more than the sum of the parts that's just as important if not a more important challenge sometimes maybe overlooked sometimes maybe not as easy to see you know you need to really mm -hmm. dig in to understand what works well in those parts but it all depends on the song and and how experienced i feel like i am in that vein that we're working in and then i just kind of take it from there right on so so that's the last track did is there anything that i forgot to ask you about maybe even from a, a banjo perspective that you would want to call anyone's attention to or did we did we manage to cover all of it man i think no i don't think so you know there revolution is the one time where the banjo really does its thing in in full yeah. bloom but we we talked about that um you know that that was a jam section that was totally you know we had no idea how that was going to go and that jam that's on the record it was one of those great moments in the studio i'll never forget it where you know we we played through the song just to get our heads around the form and we played it played it a few times and then every time we'd get to that jam we kind of peter out and stop because we knew where we were going ultimately and we'd rehearse that end piece too and then i remember when we cut loose on this thing and it was just like that great feeling you get sometimes with music where the music is just carrying you along. You're not, uh -huh. again, you're in that zone. You're not thinking about technique. You're not thinking about anything. And it's just like easy to play. Nothing feels fast or you're playing too hard. And I remember that that solo kicked in and what ended up on the final, you know, what ended up on the record was like most of that first take. And it was, oh, wow. it was just like hot. And I remember we got through it and, and it's just an awesome feeling. You know, it's, it's validating when you go to try new music that's never been played before. You're in the studio where you're really under the microscope and boom, it, it comes to life, you know? And, and we were just like, you know, I, th I went in and doctored a little of sort of the last phrase or phrases getting out of it but like the energy and just the heat of the band and they were listening to me and vice versa. And it's just like, oh man, when the music has that life of its own, you know, that's what you're going for. Yeah, that's so cool. Uh, moving on, I guess, tell us about what banjo you used and then any other studio tricks, whether it's microphones or any anything else sure. you, you care to share about uh, the sound that represents you on the album. Sure, I played what's been kind of my go-to banjo, the banjo I played on every track on Trans Banjo except one. I played my 1930 Style 3 pre-war conversion. It's got a Huber HR30 ring. It's got a Robin Smith neck. And I should say, just for the banjo world out there, sure do miss Robin Smith. He, he was like a mentor to me and taught me so much and was just so gracious with his information. And I'd go to his shop and play like everything that he was working on. Really, really miss that guy. And, you know, I, I have lucky to have a bunch of his necks and to have this banjo that I'm playing right here that I played earlier is my Robin Smith banjo, the only new banjo that I own. And it's, he built it from the ground up with a no hole tone ring. And I played this one on trans banjo a little bit, but that, that the style three, I've used that on most everything 
for the past few years. And, you know, I've, I've got a, I got a bunch of conversion banjos. I just love the old banjos. They're so fun to have around and just inspiring to play. But, you know, that one is, is my go-to. I use D'Addario, um, light strings, 10, 11, 12, 20. I use the Ricard 10 to one tuners. Those are great. I'm using Dotson, uh, eights right now for finger picks. And I'm using this new blue chip. That's got like the scooped, I think Russ Carson designed this one, or they designed it together. I think you're um, right. But and I'm using the the banjo lit armrest, and I've got a Silvio Ferretti bridge, three quarter bridge on there. That that's how that banjo is set up. What are you using for head and like head tension these days? Somewhere between G and G sharp depends on the banjo. And Ben Eldridge showed me how to hear the pitch of a head years ago, and that was such an a really important lesson to learn. I know when you don't know how to do it, you, you think the person's crazy, but hearing and knowing how to get your banjo head tension in the ballpark of where you know it should be when the instrument sounds good helps you a lot when you're traveling. So I'm I'm always making little tweaks, but I, I keep it about, about G-sharp, and that, for me, in the way that I play, that gives me a really nice balance between the punch and the drive that I want to get out of, like the more bluegrass grooves, and then just that more open, toneful, kind of almost pretty sound that yeah. appears on on other stuff that we play a lot. But yeah, that that style three, you know, I, I have, I just sold um, another style three, and they were like almost same serial number. One was nine five five one seventeen. One was nine five five one twenty seven. Oh wow! And I loved them both for years. That other style three, I just had that feeling like I really want to. Someone should be playing this banjo, and uh -huh. and so I. Um, recently sold it to Aaron McCloskey, who plays with Woodbelly, great banjo player, great band, and have enjoyed getting lots of text messages from him about how stoked he is, you know. And oh, that, that's great. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm lucky to have some really great banjos here, but but that style three has really been my go-to in recent years. Cool. Uh, what about the studio signal chain, microphones, or anything else that you, you care to share? Sure, yeah. My my go-to is a U67, and I mm -hmm. usually use two microphones on the banjo, a U67, and then some small diaphragm condenser. Of course, essential to get them in phase, you know, ideal if you can have be recording in phase so you can hear, but that's not always the case. And sometimes that's not going to get you the best tone either if, if it's not, if it doesn't set up naturally like that. But I love a U67 to capture like the full spectrum of the instrument. And then what I use here in my home studio is a mic that's made by a company called Violet. And the mic is called a Black Finger. And it's just a small diaphragm condenser. And that helps me round out the sound, get a little more of that sharp edge when I need it. But the U67 does great. And I, I run that through some front end EQ and compression. I use a, a 6176 universal audio channel strip. And banjo can be tricky to record, but when you get that one mic in that right spot, and that's what I love about those old banjos. They don't have a lot of overtones in the studio. They sound very balanced, uh. and what you're playing really comes through. And you don't have to do a ton 
on the front end. You know, a little compression always helps just to kind of even things out. But that's that's basically what I use. One large diaphragm condenser, one small diaphragm, mix those signals, a little bit of compression on the front end. And I've tried a lot of different positions and you know, you can you can you can do a lot of a lot of different things and if you have but if you have a great sounding banjo and a and a you know good sounding player then that's really what makes a difference (laughs) that always helps too for sure well i think that's all i got chris uh i really 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 appreciate you uh giving us your time definitely give us all the websites to go to to check out the album or check out tour dates if those (laughs) if those happen knock on all the wood yeah hey keith well i got one more thing for you yeah, I'd yeah. be remiss if I didn't share this because, like I said, I've been really, you know, really working hard to kind of get the, the technical side of things dialed in. And I'll just share my one thing that I've really realized about having two fingers anchored. If you're struggling, maybe this can make a difference for you. And this is something that I've I've been chatting with Ron Block about, and he's also a mentor to me and just a monster, obviously, but really such a cool and thoughtful guy. And I've had some you know, really, really inspirational conversations with him. And we've talked about this stuff and we've talked about technique and self-doubt and journeying to a place where none of that is in your consciousness and you can just play and what a challenge it is. And some of those conversations really inspired me to, to, to try and up my game. But one thing I know that's made a huge difference for me is my middle finger, if I can really get it curled under and not like you know, it's almost like when you look at, at your hand from straight on the banjo, you can't see anything below that, that middle knuckle, you know, because, mm-hmm. and if you, and I've watched like video of so many banjo players just to, just to see, I know everyone's hands are different and we all do things a little differently. And, you know, you got everyone from like Gnome who has like his plant fingers are really straight, but those fingers are curled under. And then you got Bela, who's more like a neutral, like his plant fingers are a little arched. But again, the middle finger is always inside of the ring finger. And when I was starting to achieve that and then getting that muscle memory down of that middle finger sort of staying inside the ring finger and staying close to the string, you know, as efficient a technique as you can have, that was just a big game changer for me. And, you know, kind of the the new piece of advice that's on my brain that that is fun to share. And if I, if I can save someone else six months of trying to figure out how to play this way, then, you know, then I feel like my work was not for naught, but I know when I started to get that down and Ron and I talk about it and he says, yeah, I'll just like focus really deeply on my right hand for a while, just practice and make sure my fingers are doing what I want. And then you move to that phase of playing music and the more ingrained it gets, you find that you're playing more efficiently and then you can play more musically. And that's the whole goal of that process. Just to clarify, you said middle finger inside the ring finger. By inside, you mean between the ring finger and the strings? Yeah. Or what, what do you yeah. consider inside? Yeah, like like your middle finger. I, I can't see your hand right so, now, by so, the way. <laughs> so, so your middle finger, yeah, I think between the string and your plant finger is a good way to say it. And the middle finger should be, like in my case, it just really helps to get it curled and almost curled under. And then the other, you know, the other thing to go along with that, um, I talk with Gabe Hirschfeld from time to time just about nerdy banjo stuff. And he he was like, yeah, your your plant fingers should really be like totally relaxed. You shouldn't be like pulling down on that ring finger on the head, like that middle finger's pulling on that ring finger. You got to get 
the muscle memory down to where the fingers just act independently and the and the plant fingers are just there to stabilize things and give you a reference point but not induce tension so if you feel like you're inducing tension you got to go into that ron block mode and really focus deeply on that hand figure out how to get relaxed build it in and then take it to your music yeah you're you are coincidentally just speaking directly to something i've been really wrestling with is that i i can play with not too much tension but i find my plant fingers slipping enough that i can actually hear them yep. when i play you know they're they're doing the scratchy snare drum thing yep and so there yeah it, it's a balance i've been trying to wrestle with so how do you practice resolving that oh like good do you question. have do you have exercises that you do or do you just try to say hey today i'm gonna you know i'm gonna take that tension off my my plant finger and make sure i'm not moving on the head or is there like a way that you feel like you're you've been made progress on that Sometimes I try to only plant my ring finger. Uh-huh. That's and, what Trishka um, does. Really? Yep. Okay. And I don't do that all the time, but I, I try to get it so that, again, like you said, the muscle memory, it, I think it helps cement the muscle memory for the ring finger to be like, no, you're you're staying there. That's right. And also probably a little bit of flexibility is, is an issue, just uh, in the palm muscles, getting the ring finger able to... Mm-hmm do everything I need it to mm-hmm. without the the fingers slipping around. I also find that as I warm up more, if I get in like a, it's pretty rare that I get like a few hours of playing in a day, but on the days that I do, I find it's not as much of an issue. So yeah. I think some of it's just being warmed up and being stretched out. Right. right. And um, Brian Sutton says something like, and I, and this resonates with me. If you can find a relaxed, tension-free zone, even if it's really slow, if you can find your way into that zone, you can scale that up. If when you're practicing, I can even tell, like if I'm practicing slowly, but there's tension, there's no no reason to speed up until you get rid of that tension. And yeah. some, you know, sometimes though, you you know, you got a gig to get ready for, and it's like, well, I got I got to. I got to be ready to do what I'm about to do on stage. But if you're in just a pure practice phase. For me, finding that super relaxed, tension-free zone, and then I, I, I like have it even like written on like a piece of cardstock in my case. Memorize the feeling, like memorize that feeling. Build that pathway in your brain to your hand. Make it so that it's second nature, and then bring it to your music, to where you're playing, but you're not thinking about these anything, these things, but your hand is doing what you want and developing that reliable technique, that place that I know I can count on and go back to. That is my whole mission in trying to up my technical game so that I know where that zone is. It's not as much of a moving target and there's more consistency and, you know, relaxed power. If you can do it slowly, you can scale it up if that makes sense. It is noticeable how big of a difference it makes when you do get into that relaxed zone and all of a sudden you're playing at fast speeds and still relax. That's it. It's such a world of a difference. Exactly. Another thing, I don't know if this directly helps the hand issue, but uh, I've been trying to concentrate on my breathing while playing as well. Uh, I grew up um, through high school as a saxophone player. So I think my tendency 
is to hold my breath yep. and I'll, I will actually like breathe with musical rests because that's what I always had to do with saxophone. At least that's what I blame it on at this point. And I'm just really trying not to, I, I'm trying to consciously make sure that I'm breathing throughout my playing. It's a great, another great practice. And I've, I do that. And I remember when I was uh, teaching Banjo Summit, Ben Krakauer was talking about that. Andy Hall. I did a whole podcast intro about breath work and even just oh. doing, doing, you know, like 10 big breaths through the nose, you know, like in for four, hold for seven, out for eight, or just even just big breaths through your nose and hold it at the top. It releases chemicals. You change your composition, you know, and if you, if when you're playing, all you're doing is holding your breath or breathing really <laughs> shallow, you're not really helping yourself out. And that's more right. of that survival mode. But again, a lot of these things we need to teach ourselves. We, we, we don't do them automatically. There's so many things that need to go right. And maybe some people, a lot of those things come naturally to, but for the rest of us, like me, I got to dig in and work on these things. And breathing while you're playing is definitely one of them. And I'll, I'll go through a little, you know, okay, for this next two minutes, I'm just going to make sure I'm breathing deeply while I'm playing. And just like that, getting the middle finger underneath right. thing, if I can find a zone where I'm doing it relaxed and comfortable in my practice, well, then I can take it to my actual music. And that's, for me, that's like a, a roadmap to progressing as a musician. Yeah. Me memorize the feeling is a good way to put it, it because I'll, I'll try to, I don't even care what I'm playing, just fumble around, but just get used to the feeling of making sure that you're breathing while your hands are engaged that's it. too. So, that's it. All right. Lot to work uh, on there. <laughs> a lifetime's oh, yeah. worth. I have, I have, yeah, plenty of lifetimes work to do. <laughs> uh, you owe me some websites about where, where to find your album. Thestringdusters.com will get you everything for the dusters. And, you know, follow us on Spotify. We've got some really cool and unique things coming through that channel. And then chrispandolfi.com will take you inside everything that I'm doing and my producing and my writing. And I've got a lot of um, different things happening there, but you can definitely find Trance Banjo also on Spotify. It's under Chris Pandolfi. The album is called Trad Plus Presents Trance Banjo. And I've got some new stuff in the works right now. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Very, very cool. All right. Well, hey, thank you so Thanks, much again Keith. for being generous with your time and your advice. A yeah. lot of helpful stuff. Yeah, man. Thank you. And thank you for putting together this great podcast, man. I'm, I'm a listener. Thanks for listening, folks. Don't forget to check out that new album by the infamous String Dusters, Toward the Fray. That is coming out February 18th, 2022. Thank you to very special listener, Nils Larson. He's the Patreon supporter of this episode. Head on over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter yourself. And that also gets you invited to the very cool VIP lounge. The VIP lounge is next happening this upcoming Sunday. That is January 23rd, 7 p.m. Eastern time. And once again, that's patreon.com slash banjo podcast to find out all about that. Email the show, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. That's going to do it for me. I will see you all next time.